Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. This is a continuation of the episode on copyright, and what we're going to be exploring tonight is the ways in which copyright has gone wrong. Um, now, we're still going to cover some of the basics uh, that we didn't cover last time, but we're going to start talking about, I guess, copyright in the modern era is a good way to put it. Um, some of the things that have changed, and I think a lot of these are well known, but maybe not all of them. So one topic we didn't cover last time is the idea of compulsory licenses. And compulsory licenses are uh, a bit unusual because the as, as you read the description of them, they don't sound quite like what their name implies, but they are kind of what it is what it implies. The idea of a compulsory license is a license that you are required to give by law. Um, one example is certain types of musical recordings. You can um, use this work without uh, permission from the author, but you have to pay a royalty and notify the author, or the copyright holder, I should say. Um, so copyright, uh, compulsory copyright licenses, and they exist for patents as well for that matter, are an interesting topic because they give us a window on what some of the ways you could reform copyright might be, right? The, the, the idea that you could provide a, a certain type of license that is required to be usable. Um, you know, I, I kind of see a use for that similar to some of the like Creative Commons licenses that are used in Creative Works or the GNU General Public license that's used for some software, uh, where there's a certain way of using the software where you don't need specific permission. However, it does require you to do certain other things. So um, that's you know one one kind of idea, right? You've you've got some some sort of a, a means that already exists that maybe with some changes could be used for reforms of some sort. Um, if you think back to our discussion of the Statute of Anne, it gave 14 years uh, from, from the time it was copyrighted. Plus, you could extend it if you wanted for another, uh, I believe it was 14 years. And since then, there have been extensions. There have been a lot of extensions. Um... You know, it went to 14 to 20 to, you know, very far. The Berne Convention, I've talked about the Berne Convention before in, in the Ratchet episode. Um, the Berne Convention actually set some minimums, and there, most countries are higher in one way or another than the minimums. The Berne Convention requires the author's life plus 50 years. Photos uh, for, for uh, authored works, for, for books and things. Photos get a 25-year copyright date from their creation, and movies get a 50-year date from their showing. There is a little bit of an exception there, where if it was never shown, it's from the date it was created, I guess finished would be the way to say that. Um, in the United States, the copyright is the author's life plus, plus 70 years. We also have a, a little bit of a difference if it's work for hire. So it's one thing if I, as an independent author write a book. It's another thing if um, someone hires me to write a book. That's part of my my day-to-day job and they're paying me. In that case, it's 90 years. 
So we've gone from 28 years to potentially 140 years, well over a century, well over a human lifetime, something like seven generations. Because if you release a work when you're 20 and you live to 90, or let's say you release work when you're 10, right? You help write a children's book and this book lasts for the copyright lasts for the rest of your life. You you die in a nice old age, right? 85, 90, 95, whatever it is. And then another 70 years. This book is going to exist in copyright for such a long period of time, no one will be alive to remember a time before the book existed. Right? That's That's strange in the history of the world that a set of ideas or an expression of of uh, art or knowledge is locked down for such a period of time. We have to ask if that's in the public good. Um, you know, one of the things I've started thinking about is how that how that affects the artist, because at the end of the day, the artist, the author, that's what we're trying to incentivize with copyrights. Right? We want to make sure that they're taken care of. So we'll, as we get into things later on, we'll talk about um, that in a little bit more detail. Um, another another sort of landmark thing, right? This is kind of where we start looking at where things have gone wrong in recent years. Um, I'll, I'll start with 1999, uh, Napster. Right, Napster was a peer-to-peer -peer file network. Um, it lets you share files from your computer to someone else's computer. And this is sort of early days of the internet, so at least as far as consumers were concerned. So people tended to have relatively slow connections, but some people had faster ones. Um and it wasn't it wasn't this widespread thing. Right now people walk around with internet connected devices at all times, but then it was more of a thing you'd sit down at your computer and work. Um so it was peer-to-peer -peer in the sense that you copied your files from your computer to someone else's computer. It did require a central server that would help coordinate things so you could search for... Uh, it was MP3-focused, of course, so music, right? You could search for a particular song or a particular artist and would help you find other people that had it, and then you could go on and browse their collection. Um, it, it, was, it was interesting in a lot of ways because if you wanted to find a live recording of a band, that's something you could do. Uh, on Napster way more easily than any other way that existed at the time. And for a time, music became free as in cost. If you look at the Wikipedia article for it, it says it became a public good, which is uh, an interesting way to look at it. A public good is something like clean air that benefits everyone and you can't be excluded from it. Um, and so that was the state of things, right? This was a big deal for the Recording Industry Association of America. They kind of freaked out because their business model was, you know, under under attack. It was circling the drain, and they didn't see it coming. They didn't know how to adapt, right? These are these are, you know, people who've been in the music industry, writing, uh, you know, all kinds of contracts and doing all kinds of stuff, but not really dealing with technology. And so, this was a hard thing. Um, and so that takes us into sort of what they tried to do next. And this is something that is an, an ongoing issue, an ongoing approach, which is digital rights management. 
Digitorites management is software or hardware that uses some encryption stuff to limit reproduction and reuse of digital content. If you listen to the encryption episode, and I, and I hope you have, if you haven't, you should go back and listen. I go through a really good overview of all the different pieces of encryption and, and some of the limitations. It's really focused on the perspective of, um, you know, people who want to limit end-to-end encryption, you know, pe- people in, uh, in Congress or in, in uh, police organizations or things like that. But the, the basis of encryption is the same. And so the way digital rights management works is that you're trying to restrict the copying, but copying a file is easy, right? In a digital system, you just get a copy, right? You just copy bit for bit and you've got a new one. There have been attempts since the beginning of computers to create copy protections. But once the the network gets involved, once you have the internet available or a local LAN or whatever, that come becomes even harder because it's in memory and you can just copy it over. So what they try to do is uh, encrypt it and give you the encryption key in a way that you can't find the encryption key. As you'd imagine, that's actually very difficult to do. Um, things have happened uh, a lot of different ways that uh, that have, you know, shows shows the weakness of that, right? Because the key exists somewhere. You, you can get at that key. Um, the Free Software Foundation refers to digital rights management, DRM, as defective by design because it is placing the needs of the publisher over the needs of the user of the computer, right? It's your computer, it's your equipment, you're paying for this content in some sense, some way, and yet they're limiting what you can do with it. And not not just like, you know, please don't copy this, but they're actually preventing you from doing stuff. And um, things got pretty bad at one point um, with, with all this. Now, Digital rights management was the response to stuff like Napster. Um, but digital rights management alone wasn't enough. We'll talk about a program in a second called DCSS that really illustrated this. Um, but I want to talk about a, a law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It's a pretty controversial law, especially with people who were involved in the technology world uh, around the turn of the century very controversial. Um, it makes illegal anything that breaks digital rights management, DRM, unless there's no other way to get to the work. Right. So if you write a program that can break DRM, or you make a device that can break DRM, that device is illegal. Unless, um, you know, some very specific situations are in place, um, these exceptions. Uh, the basic idea would be that the company that published it is now out of business, right? So if they sold you something and they decide they don't want to sell it anymore or don't want to support it anymore, but they're still around to enforce their rights, you're probably not able to create, uh, you know, some sort of anti-DRM technology for it. And specifically, with this exception, you have to create your own. In any circumstance, distributing any anti-digital rights management technology is I believe it's a criminal act. It might be a civil civil act. Um, in my notes, I have criminal here, but now that I'm thinking about it, that may not be true. Um, in Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, uh, the Librarian of Congress is specifically able to give grant an exception. 
so the Library of Congress, I think it's every three or five years, sits down and gives a list of exceptions that, you know, well, you can use um, anti-DRM technology in this case or in that case. You can, um, you know, uh, have a, a SIM unlocker. That's one of the ones that's been out there. Um, there's also another provision called the safe harbor provision. I don't remember the section on that one. I didn't find it, you know, when I was doing my, my research, but I didn't look too hard for that specifically. The safe harbor provision is actually a really important one. It's about liability. So imagine if you're an, a service provider like Facebook or Google or Twitter and or YouTube for that matter. You've got a customer that puts their uh, some copyrighted content online. The safe harbor provision gives a procedure that allows the provider to not accept the liability for what their users do. It's somewhat similar to this idea of common carrier. If you're not familiar with common carrier, common carrier is this idea that if you're a common carrier of data, like the phone network, you're not responsible for what people do on the phone network, right? If you're the phone company. And the term common carrier goes back to like the idea of uh, bus drivers, right? Everyone that gets on the bus is, you know, is uh, responsible for their own behavior on the bus. It's not the bus driver's responsibility to be policing their action in the same sense that it is for a, a homeowner to kind of be responsible for policing what's happening within their house. So if someone comes into your house and starts breaking a bunch of laws, you have some kind of responsibility to either stop them, kick them out, call the police, whatever. Whereas on a bus, the bus driver, they might call the police if they see something, but it's not their responsibility to stop you in, in any event. Um, so th that's sort of the idea. The safe harbor provision is a big deal. And I, I used to actually uh, give some training at a company I was at for people to learn how to pr uh, abide by it, right? It was, it was part of our regular training because we actually did deal with um, what's called a DMCA takedown notice, which is someone saying, hey, you're hosting my copyrighted content. And we'd say, oh, okay. You know, it's a very simple process. You uh, take have to take it down. Once notified, the person who's put it up can say no it's really mine and at that point the liability shifts right you're you're not um not in charge of that anymore and you know they can go sue each other in court and you just do what the court says and and then you don't have to worry about being sued right you're you're uh, legally safe now outside of the safe harbor provision this idea of breaking drm being illegal conceptually it means that a company can create any form of digital protection that they want. Um, and then the law sort of backs up the digital protection and says, well, yeah, you have to abide by whatever digital protection they put in there. Does this sound to you at all like the licensing of the Press Act, right? Well, this is the first kind of proto-copyright idea, right? They, they weren't trying to control the content. They're trying to control the production of books right, when the printing press was a new invention. And now we're doing the same thing, right? DRM is a means to control the production or the reproduction of works. And the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is trying to back it up in law. So I, I kind of feel like, you know, if we look back to history, 
there is, I forget what it is, 50, 70 years between the licensing of the Press Act and the Statute of Anne. There was enough time to kind of come to terms with that technology and what it meant and to really understand how we could we could benefit from it. Now, the DMCA had some really dark sides. Um, the big one was Sony. Um, Sony owned uh, you know, owns a music company, and they produced CDs that were essentially a virus. It had what's called a rootkit on it. So you would install it on your computer and did the same thing that you know malware does, what viruses do. It would install itself, hide itself, and it would watch what you're doing to make sure you weren't copying CDs, copying music. It broke your computer. Right? It prevented it from doing something you wanted it to do. They did that under the, you know, under this idea that it's, well, form of digital rights management. Technically, I think, under Section 1201, um, or, or under the DMC in general, creating a, an antivirus that can find this thing that's malware in your computer, right? It's, it's hiding, it's actually adding vulnerabilities and insecurities, could technically be considered a violation of the DMC, right? Like this, this antivirus software that's doing something good for you. This was a big deal when it happened. Um, I think there's no, nothing to say about that other than it was wrong for Sony to do this, right? To, without people's knowledge or consent, install software on their computer that f- causes it to function improperly. Right? They installed a virus. They installed a backdoor, and they, they, there was no way to uninstall it properly. Right? They had some uninstaller. They had this different stuff that went out, and it didn't really do what it said. Um, Sony also made some CDs that didn't quite comply with what's called, the, I believe it's the Red Book standards, which are the standards of how CDs are written, and you need to comply with those to put the the compact disc logo on the side of your CD. And the way it works is a little bit technical, but CDs are written from the, the middle to the outside, and they have a table of contents. And you can write more than one table of contents on there. And so what they did is they wrote it in such a way that a, a regular CD player would only find a certain table of contents, and then it would have the track listing. But a computer wouldn't be able to read it, and it would get garbage, and it wouldn't be able to find where the song started, and so you couldn't rip the music off and make mp3s from your cd right this is really low level um attempts to to block the production right right it's licensing the press act type stuff now the funny thing about this is because the cd writes from the center to the outside you could actually block the cd player or the cd-rom drive in your computer from reading that by putting a marker on the outside edge of your your disk, right? You just mark a little bit in a couple places and the CD drive wouldn't be able to read the outer outer edges and so it would go look somewhere else for the table of contents, which it would find. Um, it has to do with something called, I forget how it works, somehow it would like write a table of contents and write a new one and write a new one. It's, it's the same thing I think that would happen if you were to burn a CD multiple times where you can expand what's on it. I'm not really an expert in that, but because of it, it would go and search for the next most inward table of contents because it tries to find one on the outside edge and then come in. And so because of that, technically speaking, permanent markers, 
became illegal under the DMCA. I don't think anyone tried to prosecute that. But technically speaking, you probably could. I think the judge would probably throw it out because, you know, there's a lot of other valid uses for markers. But this is the kind of weird stuff you get when you start saying, well, the the user has to abide by this device, how the device is built. That's kind of what digital rights management is. It might not necessarily be a physical device, although in some cases it was. And that takes us to DCSS. Um, DVDs were built with digital rights management in them. Worked a few different little pieces, right? There was a special track on the DVD that you could you couldn't buy a consumer DVD player to write. You had to have a special commercial one that was only in DVD pressing factories that would say it was a certain type of DVD. They would be encrypted with a region code. And uh, well, that's that's quite an interesting thing. The region code's idea was they would sell CDs in certain regions so they could charge different prices. May not technically have been uh, completely legal under the law, I don't think, but... Uh, Again, you know, this is a major media conglomerate. They were able to get away with it. Um, but, you know, it's it's taking something that's essentially a fungible good and and charging different prices for it. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe it's maybe that's legal under the law, the way licensing works for this stuff. But it it seems it seems like a bit of a strange thing to prevent resale between markets. Um, I mean, unless you're talking about import duties or something, but that's not what this was. It was just, it would prevent you from buying a CD in France and watching it in the United States or, you know, buying one in Africa, which is, you know, probably a less expensive market to buy DVDs and bring them into the United States. I don't know. Um, that's that's what they used it for. So they, they did that. They had some anti-copying stuff on there. There was a few different types that they put in there. There was some that was for preventing copying on a, a VHS recorder, right, a, a VCR. Um, and then there were some others that were you know, more digitally focused. But the big thing was, if it had this special thing that said, ah, this is a factory disk, and it had the encryption, you couldn't copy an everything over, and so you couldn't make a copy of the movie. Um, so a guy who I believe is still anonymous, I, I haven't looked into it recently, or at least pseudonymous. Um, he wrote a program called DCSS, D-E-C-S-S. And what it did is it would scan the DVD and it would decrypt it. Now, the initial version of this required the encryption key. A later version was able to compute the decryption key, right? So the, the key that was used to remove the digital rights management stuff and decrypt it so it could play. Well, clearly, this software was illegal under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. But it's a funny thing. You're making an idea essentially illegal to express, right? You're at least in a particular format. Compiled binary code. That's a device. But also the instructions for how to build the device, the source code. So that wasn't okay to distribute. But there's kind of a limit to how much you can say, well, you can't express that idea, right? At least in the United States with the First Amendment. So people came up with a lot of interesting ways to get around it. Uh, there were t-shirts, right, that had the, the source code printed on them, uh, different designs like that. My favorite, though, was someone took the source code and put it to song. Um, it, you know, I think if you hit play and pause enough, you could, and you knew a little bit of C, you could probably write it down. 
uh, was I can't say it was like the greatest song ever written, but it was it wasn't bad. And it had a great, you know, hook that the DMCA steps on me and makes my code illegal. It was it was pretty funny. Um and this isn't the first time that sort of thing has happened. There was a period of time where the United States considered encryption to be munitions, right? They considered it to be like the same thing as bombs, bullets, and guns. And it was illegal to export. But again, it's an idea. So there was this program called PGP, and the author of it wanted to get it outside the United States so other people could take advantage of it, which was prohibited. So he couldn't send the software, he couldn't send the source code, so what did he do instead? He took the source code, printed it to a book, and exported the book, because you can't prohibit exporting books in the United States. At least you couldn't at the time, and I, I doubt you can now. And so the book got exported, and it was written with a font that made it easy to scan. And so it got scanned, turned into source code, and then they started you know, mainly working on this code outside the United States. And then you know we'd have to pull it in rather than the other way around. Uh, something similar happened with uh, Blu-ray. It had, you know, its encryption key. Someone figured out the encryption key. I think at some point someone dropped the encryption key on ping pong balls at a conference. Um, that's that's kind of been the, the way things have gone. Um, online digital rights ma management where you have to connect to a system is a little bit trickier to get around in many cases. Um, it's even more problematic because if the thing you're talking to on the other end disappears... So does what you have. So things things get a little funny with with the DMCA and digital rights management. But if you stop and think about it, people were pirating movies, people were pirating music, and that isn't nearly as common as it once was. And so you have to ask why. What changed that made people stop doing this? Well, let's go back to Napster. Napster, music became free. Most people enjoying music in the 20th century were just listening on the radio and they weren't paying for it. A lot of people, myself included, would get some blank tapes and record songs you liked off the radio to listen to later. It was a pretty normal thing to do. <clears throat> of course, you wanted to buy this the the album, but maybe, you know, I was I was a kid, so... I didn't have the money to buy them always, but sometimes you would get to do that. Um, right? That, that's it. Most people want to have the music they like for free most of the time. They'll pay sometimes. They'll pay a certain amount. But people don't have a $5,000 a year budget for music. Look at what happened with Napster. And people... There's a demand for music. People are willing to pay. But they didn't want to pay for every song. And so what took away from that? Well, you had iTunes, and iTunes started selling by the song, so that helped because you could you could buy that. There were other services around that time too. I don't want to, you know, call out just the one service. There were others that were were making similar uh, strides, but iTunes was by far the biggest because of the success of the iPod. So you had iTunes, you had um, you had people doing that. And DRM was required at first by the music companies, but then maybe they realized that no one, no one was really copying these MP3s around because it was easy. Not copying the MP3s, getting the music. They made it easy. You didn't have to buy every single song. You could buy the ones you wanted. 
<clears throat> and once once that became easy, the demand to pirate music went down actually quite a lot. Um, think about all the services that came after Napster. There was LimeWire, Kazaa, Morpheus, a bunch of others, right? They all continued after Napster. But the demand for that stuff has really gone down. Because people started, you know, buying music through a simple system that just worked easily for them. They didn't have to figure all this stuff out, and that was valuable to them. They didn't feel like they're being held hostage, although, you know, especially at the early days of, of iTunes, people kind of were because of the DRM. But then now, in today's world, we're we're streaming, right? We've got Spotify and Google Play Music and Apple Music and a bunch of others. You know, Netflix started as a DVD rental company. There was always movie rentals. People were used to doing that. I mean, I remember paying quite a lot for movie rentals in retrospect. When Blockbuster or Hollywood Video had a new release out, I think it was $5.99 a night to rent the movie. With inflation, that's 10 or $12. But we're willing to pay that. It was reasonably convenient. It was kind of fun. It was a lot of fun, actually, to go into the video store and look around for new movies and stuff. And then you'd pick one, and, you know, usually it was good, but occasionally you would you'd get some bad luck and you get a bad movie. That was kind of part of it. That That's all, all it was, right? And so with movies, Netflix was sending their DVDs out, and they got pretty popular because they made it kind of more of a, an on-demand thing, and you had an unlimited library, and you didn't always have to leave your house to go to the movie store. And then they started streaming, right? And, man, everyone picked up on it immediately. Everyone loves streaming with Netflix. And it turned out that people are willing to pay a reasonable amount of money on a regular basis to watch stuff that they like. Or, if not, they're willing to listen to ads, right? People are used to listening to ads on the radio. Do it on Spotify. They'll do it on Google Play Music. Do it on YouTube, right? So that's that's where things started changing. And the the big the big lesson from that is that it was about convenience, Right when it's convenient, that's where people go. There's always going to be a subset of people who pirate for a variety of reasons. Right? They want to make a statement. They don't have the money to pay. They don't want to pay. They whatever. There's going to be some of that. But by and large, most people are going to go for what's easy and convenient. They're willing to pay for it. Um, there's there's all these streaming services and they work. And so think about that in contrast with like the early days of DRM and the DMCA and then the licensing of the Press Act, right? This this sort of limitation. I still think we're probably 20 or 30 years away from figuring out the solution as a society that makes sense for everyone. But we're getting there. At least I think so. Um, as part of this, I will mention Widevine. Uh, Widevine is a major digital rights management implementation that a lot of services are using today. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it was designed by Google, and um, different system, different providers use different versions of it in their systems. So, if you're on some some providers, you know you can't use it on a Chromebook, and then some you can, and some you can on Linux, and some you can't. If you're on you know Mac OS or Android uh, or Windows or iOS, then you probably have the full HD experience, but you know, if you're on something that's not quite one of those, like Roku, 
maybe you don't get the full HD experience with with you know the current streaming setup or whatever. It seems like the trend for most providers has been that they start out with very restrictive DRM on their streaming, and then as time goes on, they turn it down to pretty minimal. You know, with a let most devices use the HD stream. I'd like to see a future where we don't need DRM, um, where you know we can we can figure out a way to make this work for everyone without that sort of restriction. I'll get into that a little bit more in a few minutes. Uh, finally, well, in in this this kind of progression of things, we've talked about some of the things that really went wrong here, right? The DMCA and and DigiRights management and Napster. I mean, there's a lot of problems with with that on both sides, right? On the you know people pirating stuff like crazy, obviously depriving the the artists and record companies of stuff they should have had, right? Revenue that they should have been making that people are like, well, I'm not going to pay, and um, and then the reaction, you know, Sony especially installing viruses on people's computers, right? That's not okay. Um, the DMCA, I, I'm not really comfortable with, with the direction it, it takes things, right? Especially considering this long-term, like, hundred-year-plus time frame that most things stand for copyright. So today we've got Disney Plus. Um, so we've had Netflix, and if you've been a long-time Netflix subscriber, you'll recognize that it used to have tons of stuff in its library because that, they had an easy time negotiating with these people that own the copyrights, right? It was just an extra bit of money that could be made. But as Netflix came to kind of dominate the home viewing experience in a way that cable used to, I think, the other the other providers like, oh, I'd like to have some of that revenue, right? So Hulu came, formed from a bunch of tele- television networks and stuff. They started doing their thing, and then, you know, you've got... Um, I think ABC has its own stream platform, and Fox has their own, and HBO has their own, right? Stuff's all over the place. Disney Plus is there now. Now, Disney's been buying up as many properties properties as it could manage, right? As many franchises, as many studios. Um, in the past, Disney used this vault strategy. And if you don't, don't remember the Disney vault, or maybe you remember it and just kind of accepted it, that face value didn't really think too hard. The Disney vault was this idea where they would say, Oh, we've, we're taking Cinderella out of the Disney vault. Get it while you still can before it goes back into the Disney vault. And the Disney vault just basically meant we're not selling it right now. We're going to sell it then because when it comes out, you're going to be willing to pay more for it because you can only buy it now. The Disney vault is kind of their old strategy. Right now, I think they're doing something similar, right? Their their price is lower than Netflix, lower than Hulu, lower than anyone, right? And yet it has a ton of content. I don't think they're going to keep that up forever. I think they're trying to get market share, and they're essentially dumping, right? They're, they're trying to just keep low prices, steal market share, so people will either sign up for them and just stay with it, or they'll sign up for them and cancel Netflix, or whatever it is. But they're they're sort of dumping, right? They spent a bunch of money on this content. They're selling it, I think, below what the, the fair market value would be. Or maybe not. Maybe maybe this is the fair market value, but they're selling it below what their competitors are. So that we'll stay there, right? And and so now you've got Hulu, you've got Netflix, and you've got other providers creating their own content. Even even on YouTube, right? If you have a premium YouTube subscription, there's special content that's only on YouTube. And this leads to sort of fractured landscape and streaming. You don't see this so much in music, right? All the big music providers are selling to everyone. 
because the music providers, the music uh, studios, aren't the ones owning the streaming services by and large. But in the video world, that's not how it's coming to be. The the studios are the ones that own these systems. You know, even Netflix, which didn't start as a studio, now is. So the landscape is fractured, and it's more expensive. It's like getting a cable subscription. You want to watch this show? Well, you need to subscribe to this network. You want that show? The other network. And just like with cable, where you couldn't subscribe a la carte to just the channels you want, you had to get them in bundles because how the channels were licensed to the cable company, you have the same situation here where you can't subscribe just to the shows you want unless you purchase them, right? You purchase individual episodes. You end up having to subscribe to different networks to get to different shows. So you have to get Netflix, you have to get Hulu, you have to get HBO+, Plus, you have to get ABC Total Access. You get all this stuff. It costs more, and it becomes more difficult. So I think some people will stick with that, but I also think the people who are kind of marginally invested in, in this start to feel like it's more hassle and more difficulty. It's less convenient to do it legitimately than it is to do it illegitimately. And so you're going to drive some significant fraction of people away from the legitimate services by making it so scattered and so, so difficult, right? And so costly in, in, in any event, right? It's, it's pretty expensive to maintain all these subscriptions. And so some people are just on the margins are going to start moving away from legitimate and you're going to help support the the less legitimate means that's that's what i see happening in the short term but i think just as streaming has helped to simplify and remove a lot of the desire for people to pirate this content um i think i think that the market will eventually work itself out and socially and legally we're going to find a way to deal with this I don't I don't believe in the kind of like sky is falling mentality of we'll never solve this because I think it can be. Um so I'm I've kind of touched on this a little bit now, right? We've got some challenges today, and this is kind of where I want to wrap things up in the next few minutes. Um right, we we have challenges of this fractured landscape, but um we've got laws that benefit publishers to the detriment of the public, and even in some cases to the artist. Right? And and I think the case for why it's detrimental to the public is pretty obvious, right? The if if something went in the public domain in twenty eight years, right, if something came out when you were a teenager, be a, by the time you're an older adult, right, it'd be out. Or if you're twenty, you know, by the time you're around fifty, it's gonna be available to you. Um to to use for free. But now it's like, if it's something that came out during your lifetime, it'll never be freely available. It'll never go to public domain. So that's that's the detriment to the public. And you could say, well, that's good, that's bad, whatever. But you know, remember, we're making this trade-off between restricting who can do something to incentivize them to do that, right? Only, only J.K. Rowling can write Harry Potter stories. And we give her that right because she wrote Harry Potter stories, right? She she wrote them, and a lot of people loved them, and it, you know, enriched the world, right? It was, it was a great piece of fiction um, that you know spawned books and movies and Harry Potter world and everything, right? That's that's why we give that limited ability, right? Why we give that just the one person or the one group ownership of an idea or a story or a, a fictional universe or a song. 
or a movie, right? All all of that is because we want to incentivize it. And so they can they're incentivized to do it because they make money doing it. And what we're supposed to get in return is eventually it's free for everyone. Right? We get the work, they get the the money for making the work. So I don't think that's too crazy to see that, you know, it's balancing one way more than the other, right? That's balancing more towards the creator or maybe more the publisher, right? The the copyright holder often isn't the artist. But where is this come to the detriment of the the artist? Right? How did how does this system harm the artist? Now, one example was Prince, right? Prince changed his name to the artist, formerly known as Prince, or the artist, and eventually started going by Prince again. I personally thought when that was all going on that he was just some weird guy, you know, in Hollywood. I don't know. I didn't know what it was. What really happened is the name Prince, his own given name, his birth name, was licensed, right? It it became a licensed thing, and when he broke with his publisher, with his studio he was no longer allowed to use his own given name publicly, right, as, as an artist. So that's something where a form of intellectual property, and I'm, I don't, I assume that had to do with a contract that involved both trademark and copyright. I don't really know the details of it. But that's an area where an artist was harmed, right, a well-known artist. I think a more subtle one, but much more common, is that if it doesn't go into the public domain, you can't really create derivative works. You can create parodies. Parodies are protected under fair use. But you can't create derivative works. Um, a good example would be if I wanted to write some fan fiction for uh, Star Trek or something. I don't know, right? Whatever people write fan fiction for. I could I could do that. I could probably get away with it. But if I try to sell it, certainly, the you know the owners of Star Trek would try to shut me down. And they'd succeed. You know, the people. I don't. I think they kind of tolerate this idea of fans writing cruddy stories, but you can't really go publish a a story, even a good one, and and just have that be okay, right? Because it's it's a derivative work. It's covered by the copyright of the original work, and so now this is happening for 140 years, which means someone can't make a new Star Wars movie unless it's Disney. Uh, I mean, gosh. It'll be at least 80 years from now. right? Chances are, if you're listening to this, you won't be alive when Star Wars goes into the public domain and other people can make movies in the Star Wars universe. That's a crazy thought. Um, Lawrence Lessig said that today's copyright laws, prior to the extension in 2000, so that's you know 20 years shorter, showed that 99.9% of the value for copyrighted works is already being captured by the copyright holders. Right? Do we need 99.999%? Maybe 97% would be fine. Maybe 95% would be fine of the economic value. You know, I don't think they should only get 10%, you know, but but maybe be fine to have a little bit less going to the copyright holder. And in return, we have this ability to create new art. If you listen to music, music evolves from people listening to other music. If you watch movies, people, you know, movie creators, movie makers, they see other movies and they get ideas and and they kind of reformulate and remix and that's that's how culture advances. And if we're locking up significant pieces of culture for over a century, 
we're not allowing culture to develop in the same way that we should, right? It's not as free. And that's only talking about the important works of culture, the ones that we all know, the ones that sold well, the ones that are, are massively distributed. Those ones are locked up for 140 years, but probably will be remembered. We're certainly at least aware of them, and new works will be created. But what about orphaned works? What about the book that didn't sell that well, but Random House Publishing owns it? Or the song that, you know, BMG purchased and, well, didn't go anywhere. Right? The, you know, the B-side of a one-hit wonder. This is stuff that really doesn't retain much value. And maybe if it's music and the library's not that big, it's been digitized. But maybe not. There are a lot of orphaned works, works that were created, published. No one knows who owns them. No one stepped forward to maintain the copyright. Um, you end up in this situation of, like, pieces of culture, right? Things that someone sat down to create as an artistic work languish and eventually disappear because they get lost, right? If it wasn't a widely distributed work and you have to wait over 100 years to be able to use it, or even 90 years. Heck, if the author dies and you have to wait 70 years, if it's not something that happens to reach some threshold of prominence, it'll probably be forgotten, and it won't be preserved, and we're going to lose our history. We're going to lose our cultural history. And that's a sad thing. Right? We want to in, encourage the growth of culture and the growth of artistic works and the growth of knowledge. And the best way to do that is to allow this stuff to be done, allow people to rebuild and remix. So how do we create a new statute of AM? Well, it could be a new law or it could be a reform, right? There's Either, either one could work, um, and it'll probably be a mix, I think, over the next 20 or 30 years that requires that. Um, we need to refocus on the balance between the public need and the author or creator's need. Right, I've been talking about this a lot. Really think about what is the public benefit of doing this? What is the the individual benefit? Um, I think having a shorter term of copyright with better predictability would probably be important. And predictability meaning you know that if you're creating something, you're safe to do it. There's no reason that in 1990, the Happy Birthday song couldn't be in a movie without paying copyright, at least potentially. right? That injects all kinds of unpredictability into the whole situation. Um, there's a lot of interesting proposals out there that I've read. One required would require uh, copyrights to be registered and re-registered with like a regular fee being paid. Um, one of the problems you have to deal with is the Mickey Mouse problem, which is that the Walt Disney Company still still relies on Mickey Mouse as a major property, right? They produce Mickey Mouse cartoons, and they're they're a major company, and it's really also kind of a a bit of a, a trademark for them, or very much a trademark for them. And so, how do we allow Mickey Mouse to go into the public domain? without Disney kind of freaking out. You know, um, maybe there's some sort of 
way to to do part of it as a trademark and and have like a legal pathway for that that doesn't exist now. Um, I don't know. One of the one of the interesting ideas was that a company can choose to um, put their copyright after a period of time, and they pay a fee of their choosing. But at any time, uh, someone else can go and pay, say, 10 times the fee or 100 times the fee that they paid, and that'll cause it to go out of copyright. So, for example, you would you would say, all right, I want to copyright my book for um, another 10 years, and I'm going to pay $1,000 to do that. And someone can come around and pay $100,000 to the copyright office, and then the book goes out of copyright, and at that time I would get... Uh, $99,000, something like that. I mean, obviously it's it's a pretty vague proposal. You could work out the details of it as, as it became a law. That was one idea, right? Uh, requiring for uh, work to stay in copyright, regular registrations, that alone would probably help with the orphan work problem. Um, whatever it is, we need to empower the artist, not the publisher, right? Al- allow the people who create the work to continue to create works. And the publisher's... They have an important job, but they're not the the ones creating the work. They're not the ones moving culture forward. And so we want to make sure that we're not focusing on on their business more than we are on the cultural good or the, the societal good that the artists are producing. And so we've got to deal with these problems, right? Digital rights management, is that something we actually want? Are there better ways to do it? Like the streaming services showed there are, right? Maybe there are. Maybe we don't need DRM if we make it work well. Maybe as the back catalog of public domain works gets bigger, there'll be less need for it, right? People who don't have the the money to pay for the latest shows, maybe they'll watch older shows because they'll be good enough. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work out. But that's where we need to go with it, right? We need to think about if we get a shorter-term thing, that is more predictable, easier, uh, easier to deal with. Maybe requires some level of maintenance, uh, something that helps to balance the, you know, cost versus the income versus the, the benefits to the public and the benefits to art and culture and and the benefits to, you know, even the publisher. Right? We need we need to get everyone involved and find a way to do this that does a better job than what we have today. Well, that's all I have to say about copyright for now. Um, I'm sure that at some point in the future, I'll, I'll have more to say. I appreciate you listening tonight, and I hope you had a fantastic evening. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brighterevening.com.